Over 30 episodes of The Life and Times of Video Games, I've dug deeply into a wide range of stories about people, companies, games, and uh, moments that have helped to shape the games industry into what it is today. But what of the games that didn't get that chance to make that mark? The games that began development but didn't end it? The games we never got to see, or only got snippets of, before they were quietly buried and left undone. For episode 31, I'm doing something a little different. I'm exploring a topic, and I'm building my story out of a bunch of smaller stories. After the break, you're going to hear about the ghosts of games that never were. If you hang around game developers for long enough, you'll hear them talk about where the bodies are buried. These are not literal bodies, of course, but rather the the games that didn't survive long enough to be published. The projects and ideas and pictures that went wrong. The horror stories, the mistakes, the things that didn't pan out. Take Half-Life, for instance. Not the critically acclaimed, best-selling, massively influential 1998 PC release, but rather its planned Mac conversion. Valve and publisher Sierra had hired a specialist company called Logicware to do the Mac version, which went along just fine, barely a hitch in its development schedule. Mac gamers were abuzz with excitement, they were going to get Half-Life in late 1999, this is a year late, but they'd get all the updates the PC version had received pre-installed. It would even be possible to play multiplayer matches against PC owners. But then word came through that feature parity would be too expensive. It would require an ongoing financial commitment that Valve and Sierra just weren't willing to make. Logicware had to rip it out. Mac gamers would only get the basic Half-Life experience. They'd only be able to play against fellow Mac owners. But still, they'd get Half-Life, so it wasn't all bad. Except they didn't get any of it. Because Half-Life for Mac was abruptly cancelled. After it was done. Logicware owner and veteran programmer Rebecca Berger-Becky Heinemann recounted the story of its cancellation to me in a 2015 interview. Especially the the depression, because, you know, I was the one who got took the call from uh, Sierra telling us that Valve had decided they wanted to cancel the project. And, we're, and I was sitting like, wait a minute, we're three weeks from shipping. Not We're, we're past beta. We're, we're, we're going to ship this game. And they said, nope, uh, we're canceling the project. However, we're giving you an early completion bonus. Here's your monies, everything. We'd love to work with you. We're going to line up other work for you. But we're just not going to release this game. And, of course, I then just sitting there going like, okay, I am so lynched. Because, you know, the Mac gaming community in 1999 was like waiting for this game and and we couldn't talk at the time about why they they canceled it to protect her staff Becky gave everybody three weeks of paid time off things were about to get nasty and you're all getting your bonuses too it's just that for the for the time being can you always guys all like lay low because <laughs> they're gonna throw eggs at you and trust me, the, the, oh God, the emails and death threats and so forth I got. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Behind the scenes, it turned out 
Sierra and Valve had had a little freakout. Somehow they'd got the idea that Half-Life for Mac would be looking at half a million sales. In reality, a Mac game at the time would typically get anywhere from a few thousand to a few tens of thousands of sales. Though Half-Life was such a big deal, it'd almost certainly get up around the 50,000 mark, one-tenth of their expectations. And somehow this discrepancy didn't register with the publishing decision-makers until they got their orders in from their retail partners just before release. They did a double-take. Wait, wait a minute. Shouldn't there be an extra zero on there? So now they'd have a bunch of angry Mac owners who wanted their promised feature parity. And they'd barely even turn a profit. It wasn't worth it anymore, so Valve owner Gabe Newell took the hit. He wrote in a public statement that he personally made the decision, after realising the market realities would render Mac owners, quote, second-class customers. Instead, he said, he'd rather just eat the money they'd spent on Logicware's development time. The reasons are rarely as colourful as this, but games get cancelled all the time. Sometimes early in development, and sometimes, as with Half-Life for Mac, when they're already finished. Game might be done, might be like, okay, but they they start doing a cost analysis and it just becomes too risky to manufacture the thing, because that's a significant cost and they're not sure they'll get it back. This is Frank Cefaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. And long ago, and he really uh, emphasizes this, doesn't do it anymore. He was the proprietor of a website called Lost Levels, which was dedicated to finding and highlighting the stories of cancelled and unreleased games for the Nintendo Entertainment System and other platforms, but mainly that one. Frank says cancelling games almost always comes down to money. If the entity financing this commercial product doesn't feel that they will profit from selling this commercial product, then then it makes sense to not, uh, especially in the old days, uh, manufacture the thing, right? And, and a lot of cancelled games from the older days, that's what it came down to. So whether a game's almost done, or only in an early prototype stage, he argues, and whether the developers are happy with the design or not, and often if it's cancelled, then they're not, whether a game looks unlikely to earn worthwhile profits, or there simply isn't enough money available to complete development, the decision reduces down to money. But let's not be purely reductive here. I think the best stories of creative endeavor lie in the nuances of financing and expression and labor. So let's go deeper. Uh, So then really 2003-ish, I was interested in the Xbox in particular. And, you know, I, I started to see all these games that were changing in development in a way that uh, was much more apparent because we had the internet at that point. And then you start to hear about games that are canceled. And and to me, I started thinking, what's happening to these games? Why is it happening? What's the story there? And even though those ideas weren't quite as concrete to me then as they are now. This is Andrew Borman, cancelled games aficionado and digital games curator at the Strong Museum of Play. For more than a decade before he joined The Strong, and still to a lesser extent in the years since, he ran P2P Online, 
a website turned YouTube channel dedicated to cancelled games from the PlayStation 2 and Xbox era onwards. And to me, what's most interesting is trying to focus not on necessarily the negatives. It's a game that wasn't done for one reason or another. Sometimes it's because it's bad, sometimes it's not. Uh, but trying to tell the story of the people that were working on these games as much as possible, knowing that they're locked behind NDAs a lot of the time, and trying to tell what was and where they were going with it if they had been able to complete their vision. It's just such a fascinating story because they worked on these things sometimes months for, or years only to then have the game canceled sometimes without us ever hearing about it. As I've talked to developers over the years, uh, you, you find out that a game being canceled is really a common thing. Sometimes for some developers, they've had more games canceled than games that have actually come out, which I, I find to be fascinating. Occasionally, the games they were making might have been something. They might have been hits, or they might have introduced new ideas, or innovated on old ones in a way that nothing else has. Or perhaps in a way that was ahead of its time. Consider a game that Microprose UK had been developing in 1995. They called it Citizens. Essentially, the idea was to expand the concept of David Crane's 1985 simulation, Little Computer People, from a single person living in a house to a whole group of people living in a small world beneath a dome. Your role as player was to indirectly control the lives of your people, which entailed manipulating them into changing jobs, or getting married, or skipping work to play golf, or whatever else is on the agenda for the day. And you'd do this by altering their mood, or making them happy, or changing the weather. The whole thing had this quirky British humour like you'd see in a game like Theme Hospital. Its interface needed improving, but Citizens was looking mighty promising and innovative. Except it never got the chance to come to fruition. Five years out from Will Wright & Co's industry-changing virtual dollhouse, The Sims, it was a tough sell, a very tough sell, to the men in charge of the money, who failed to understand the appeal, or the idea, of toying with virtual people's lives. And so Citizens was cancelled, just a little ways after they got it to the stage of a playable demo. A decade later, Core Design's version of Tomb Raider 10th Anniversary Edition would be buried at a very similar stage of development. The house that built Tomb Raider had been run aground by a ridiculous yearly release schedule in the PlayStation 1 era of Tomb Raider. Five games in five years and then unceremoniously stripped of its star franchise by publisher Eidos in 2003 after the disastrous, rushed launch of PlayStation 2 entry Angel of Darkness. And responsibility for Lara Croft's adventures was instead passed across the Atlantic to American developer Crystal Dynamics, which was known for its legacy of Kane series. That caused a split within Core, and half the studio went off to form a new company called Circle. But two years later, when Core's remaining staff were working on a PSP game called Free Running, a couple of holdouts from the old Tomb Raider team had realised they had built the perfect engine for a new Tomb Raider. 
Now, by that point, the original Tomb Raider programmer, Gavin Rummery, had taken over as studio head. You met him back in episodes 7 and 8 on Tomb Raider's grid-based level editor. And Gavin connected this revelation that they had an engine fit for a Tomb Raider with an idea he'd had to do a 10th anniversary remaster of the first Tomb Raider. Not in an effort to snatch Lara back across the Atlantic, so much as to celebrate her legacy and to give the core design staff a a fun way to send her off. Here's what Gavin told me when I interviewed him in 2015 for an Ars Technica article on the fall of core design. So I went to Ida's and I thought, well, how about, why don't we do this? It'd be really cool. They were kind of, you know, initially a little unsure, but they were kind of like, yeah, it could work. And then SCI took over and they were totally up for it. They loved the idea. But it just got embroiled in politics because Crystal Dynamics, the studio manager there, just went, what? What? Core design? They're out of the picture. We don't want them touching this at all kind of thing. That was the kind of general attitude you got was suddenly they felt like we were trying to steal Tomb Raider back. Core kept working on the game. But then one day word got back that Crystal Dynamics had built a rival demo. And then things got political. We may never know exactly what happens next, but soon after, Core's version was cancelled, and nobody would have ever known about it, except that someone at Core got sufficiently pissed off that they leaked the internal demo reel video to the press. That's all it looked like we'd ever get. And indeed, Gavin told me he suspected there'd only be a few bits and pieces of the game still floating around on people's hard drives. But apparently the IDOS rep who'd told them to delete all their development files had also slyly suggested maybe a drive might go missing. And someone on the dev team took this to heart. Because if we fast forward to 2020, 14 years after the game was cancelled and a decade after core design was shut down, the story takes a big twist. Completely out of the blue, Tomb Raider superfan Ash Kaprilov received an anonymous message sent from a throwaway email account by someone claiming to have a complete copy of the source code to cause cancelled anniversary edition. So they basically sent me a WeTransfer file, password protected. They gave me the password in the message and said, yeah, this is art-based folder and stuff like that. The source claimed the game was in a playable, incomplete state but noted that it had been reskinned for Indiana Jones in a failed attempt to keep the project alive. Though Lara Croft's 3D models and animations were still in the files, and so theoretically it would be possible to get her back in there. Then they went silent for months and months, while Ash tried desperately and fruitlessly to get it to run. It was very teasing, you know, I was like, I want to play it, I don't care it's Indiana Jones, I want to play it. But then they went quiet, so I tried my best to like ask friends who have experience in programming. I even went into my old uni to speak to the head of the computer science class, whether they could help, they politely declined. Still, the build wouldn't run, but one friend, a Tomb Raider fan who goes by the name Nakamichi, wrote a program to extract the level geometry so that they could at least look at that. Ash then took screenshots of the level layouts and started talking about the leak in public channels, on his website, Tomb of Ash, and uh, on social media. 
And wary of the potential for Tomb Raider's current owner, Square Enix, to come along and squash the leak and order its deletion, he started a campaign to get legal permission to publish the files. That was in August. Come December, he'd still heard nothing back from Square Enix or Crystal Dynamics, nor had the strong museum of play, which took a copy of the files from him, or anyone else who had contacted them about the build, despite thousands of signatures to a petition another fan created. Nothing. But Ash had consulted extensively with lawyers and preservation experts, and he had a plan. Uh, so... I looked at the archive.org and I contacted guys there and they were like, oh yeah, well, we are DMCA exempt. So technically, yes, you can. And it's obsolete format. So yes, this does cover us. So you should be able to do that. So as soon as I received that, I was like, yeah, well, well I kind of have to publish it now. Can I? But then I thought I'll wait a couple of weeks until it's, Definitely, um, it's a New Year's Day. Everyone is off. Lawyers are off. <laughs> so at least fans have a few days, you know, to download it before the plug is being pulled. But yeah, I decided, you know, 2020 was terrible to all of us. And I think it should end on a positive note. So 31st of December, let's end it greatly by publishing this. <laughs> So that's what I've done. <laughs> and so then it was, what, uh, about two days before uh, a couple of people had uh, fiddled with it and someone got it playing? Uh, it was literally hours before Xfrogger got the main menu working uh, with um, Indiana Jones, which looked very green. Maybe it's because he's jealous of flower, I don't know. Uh, the texture was, like, very green on him. Weird lightning he has. Lighting even. So he had it within like an hour or so. It was done. It was on 31st before New Year's Day. He had it done. And I was like, well, the progress is kind of too fast. I did not expect this. I was hoping it will be at least a week. And on January 1st, actually, no, January 2nd, about three o'clock in the morning, Ghostblade released um, a file, a, a playable thing, basically. Uh, with instructions and I added it to archive.org and we added it to the website. So it was about, I'd say, probably 30 hours when it was playable, which was insane. This achievement meant the world to Ash and thousands of other classic Tomb Raider fans around the world. It was so special that he actually went live on Twitch to play it, buggy and incomplete, but working. For the first time, right then and there, at three o'clock in the morning, a link to the highlights video in the show notes, but I'll also mix in a few snippets of audio from it now, while you hear Ash tell us some of his memories of the experience. I kind of con connected controller and she started jumping and you could do the tumbling jumps and backflips. And it's everything for me, like, <sighs> okay. Just like in the original game, I, I actually cried and I felt so stupid because of that. <gasps> oh, I just noticed. Look, she's cold. She has like a steam coming out of her mouth. I did not expect to go full on emo over like jumps. You know, I, I miss those so much. She does backflips. She does tumbling. And it, it, I just was like, 
literally I can't I can't too much emotions sweet Jesus logic you know what the hell is happening I can't believe uh, you're playing it guys <laughs> oh this is so exciting lights Aziz lights look how pretty the lights I think core knew what we kind of wanted the classic fans they knew <gasps> They knew what kind of Lara we like. We don't need this, you know, a heroine that lives in the shadow of her dad, whether she just develops through her own faults and through her own kind of mistakes that she does and stuff like that. She develops through that rather than that was right. Oh, I need to do just like that said, like that kind of stuff. And this is how it felt like we're back there. And I think this is what probably when I when when she jumped, this is this why it probably broke me uh, because it felt like it, all these what is it uh, f- fifteen years since this build was lost, it did not happen. Uh, I actually haven't played this level yet. <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe this is actually happening. The ghosts of the Tomb Raider that never was had been freed at last, and it was magic. Like Lara Croft had never gone through her identity crisis and the crystal dynamics. Never been rebooted multiple times. Never developed her daddy issues. Never cried at the emotional weight of her first kill, only to turn into a homicidal maniac mere moments later. Never done any of it. Just for an instant, she was returned to her roots. In an unfinished remake of the first game, built on top of that original game's level geometry. Made in the same style and with the same vibes as the original, but with better graphics, better animation, prettier lighting, and symbols drawn on the walls. And all the bitching and moaning and bickering about classic Lara versus modern Lara, about core design versus crystal dynamics, about past versus present, that all evaporated amidst the joy of solving the puzzle that makes this lost artifact work again. And as the fans set to work on their digital archaeology, piecing together the history of the game, fixing the parts that are broken or incomplete, and perhaps even turning the game into something finished, and as the press rallies behind them, fascinated by this recovered artifact of Tomb Raider lore, we can now ponder more deeply, more seriously, what might have been. What might have become of this game, if not for the complex political machinations that killed it? What might have become of Core, if not for this loss of a promising new project? What might have become of Tomb Raider and of Lara Croft, if this anniversary edition had been published? Might the franchise have been split across two studios, taking turns to make new entry, each with its studio's signature style, as happened with Call of Duty and Assassin's Creed just a few years later? Might Lara's latest reboot have gone down a different path? There's an exciting, enticing set of alternate histories that stem from us learning more of the game's creation and design as there is with every other cancelled game that was meant to innovate, celebrate, or inspire. 
I'll continue with the story right after I read you this message from my sponsor. Did you play games in the 1980s? Do you own a Mac? Retro Games for Mac is a recently expanded collection of 25 different titles inspired by some of the greatest hits of the past. The selection comprises a mix of arcade games, puzzle games, and casual games, all upgraded with modern graphics and sound, a consistent user interface, and even hidden cheat codes to discover. The series was created by Richard Bannister, and it owes much to the games he played 35 years ago on his Amstrad CPC 6128. Individual titles cost just $1.99 from the Mac App Store, and 10 game packs are available for $9.99. Recent new titles to the set include a Pac-Man-style maze game, looks pretty cool, an air hockey simulation, and an original title called Chicken Rocks that combines elements of several classic games all into one. To learn more about the series, listen to my Indie Spotlight interview with Richard, or visit RetroGamesForMac.com. That's RetroGamesForMac.com. Alright, let's get back to the show. When we left off, you'd just heard about the discovery and ongoing restoration of a cancelled Tomb Raider 1 remake from Lara Croft's original studio, Core Design and how it offers us an enticing alternate history for the Tomb Raider franchise. Now we continue the discussion more broadly of cancelled games and unreleased games with help from Frank Cefaldi. People really enjoyed thinking about changing history, right? Like, like what, if, what if there was this alternate timeline? So that's another appeal, I think, of these unreleased games. But there's a lot of invisible appeals or like unexpected appeals. My favorite example is Penn and Teller's Smoke and Mirrors on the Sega CD, which is now, you know, raising millions of dollars for charity because people are intentionally playing one of the bad mini games that's on it, Desert Bus. And you just never know with these games, you know, what they might inspire. Yeah, and, and you had this really small but critical role in getting that game out there, right? You, uh, you, seeded a torrent or something yeah that you know by this time i had launched lost levels and i had gotten the word out successfully and i don't even know how in that pre-twitter world i guess forums or something that hey if you've got an unreleased game let's just get it out there and someone who had a copy from his media days he must have reviewed it or something just mailed it to me to put on the internet i mean those those kind of his instructions like you know here it is just get it out there and yeah and then i i torrented it and yeah the rest is history so if you're not familiar with the story here it goes something like this desert bus was one of several games conceived by the world-renowned illusionists pen and teller for a 1995 sega cd game collection called pen and teller's smoke and mirrors the game was intended as a satire against the anti-video game lobby, which was really powerful at the time, wherein players would be cast as a bus driver on the long, very long, boring route between Las Vegas and Tucson, a city of 500,000 people located 100 miles southeast of Phoenix. It's an eight-hour journey, devoid of humans or traffic or anything to distract you from its mind-numbing boringness. And the game simulated this experience in real time, 
with a stroke of design genius. The bus would constantly, eternally veer just slightly to the right so that you'd have to constantly correct your course lest you veer off the road and be towed back to the beginning. But the publisher shuttered just before the game came out and nobody was interested in picking up a quirky title for an unsuccessful system that was about to be discontinued. So the game sank into the realms of legend. Until 2005, when a former journalist sent a rare review copy to Frank Cefaldi, who published it online. And then its incredible afterlife began when a group of comedians decided to livestream themselves playing Desert Bus for charity. That is indeed correct. We are, uh, we are getting pretty close to our uh, $5,000 goal. A funny one-off thing that somehow turned out to be so successful, it spawned a big annual event that has since raised millions of dollars in support of the Child's Play charity. But it's not just alternate histories and weird sort of branching histories that these games that never were can provide for us. It's also actual history. They expand on our history of the creative process of making games, and the labour and economy around games. And as Frank Gasking, the author of book and website, The Games That Weren't, explains, this is history we'd lose entirely if not for the efforts of people like him and Andrew Borman and groups like Unseen64, determined to save it. I just think anything to do with gaming is worth preserving. It's a very big part of our history now. It's as, as important, if not more important, than the film and the music industry now, uh, certainly much bigger that, you know, that there's so much information here, which if we don't preserve and document it, it's going to be lost, essentially. There's going to be stories from developers, which if we don't start to collect them now, then those opportunities are going to become less and less as they get older and sadly will no longer be with us in time. And that's happening already. We're, we had games being developed as early as the 1970s and these people who are developing those games and the likes of the Atari VCS and that, they're now like well into their 70s. You know, if, if we don't collect this information, someday it's going to be gone. And, and this is, it's like everything in the world. Um, we we always document our history of everything like that's happened in the world, like wars over the all the different centuries and conflicts and all kinds of things, uh, how we've evolved as a species. And I think documenting games and the history of how these games are produced and the mistakes that are made and the failures, that's that's all crucial as well. It's it's just part of our history and what we're making as history now. Piecing together that history helps us learn what works and what doesn't, what was tried and what was discarded, what it means to make video games. I think for me, the interest in finding unreleased games is just filling out more pieces of a puzzle. I think, for example, with my specialty being the the 8-bit NES, I, I feel that the unreleased games on that platform when taken as a whole with the rest of the library just just gives you a wider breadth of what it was to develop games at that time and here we come to the root of why people are interested in the games that never were yes sure it's the alternate histories and the what might have been that take center stage when you're talking about 
big name franchises like Tomb Raider or big name developers like Hideo Kojima, whose cancelled horror game Silent Hills has become mythologized in video game canon thanks to a critically acclaimed released and then unreleased playable teaser, fittingly called PT. But both behind that and beyond that, much of the excitement around these games that weren't derives from the public's poor understanding of how game development worked in the past, and how it works now. Because this stuff gives us a peek behind the curtains, in a more visceral sense than the stories of finished games. And it allows us to see, and sometimes play games, in a form in which they were never meant to be experienced. One of the reasons this show even exists is that I want to help dispel some of the mystery and mythos around how games are made and what processes go into taking an idea from a few scribbles on a piece of paper to an assortment of prototypes and eventually a finished game that you can buy in a store or online. So I asked my interviewees for this episode what they think is getting in the way here that leads to people feeling like game development is and it was a secret. I think it's a, an industry that's fiercely competitive, even more so in today's day and age where you have, you know, TV sometimes, movies sometimes, but now you have Netflix, you have Hulu, you have YouTube, and you still have video games, but you have video games on your phone. You have all these different sources of entertainment competing. You don't necessarily want to give away that secret that may be the thing that propels you or your company into whatever the next step is. And... and I don't think the game industry has opened their doors quite as much yet to that sort of behind the scenes look. You, you did start to see it some, you know, with behind the scenes documentaries, but it's a very controlled thing where they're showing you very little when you look at it closely. But I think there's been a, a greater openness to doing so. Square Enix hasn't told the fans to stop digging into the Tomb Raider Anniversary Edition code. When 15 years ago, their predecessors at IDOS and even the sharing of a leaked trailer. Activision and Microsoft and various other companies, big and small, have agreed to preserve parts of their history at the Strong Museum. Industry legends like Sid Meier and Ken Williams are publishing memoirs, and groups like the Video Game History Foundation and Hit Save are working directly with developers to document and preserve their development processes. The tide is turning, just a little bit. And Frank Gasking thinks this growing transparency is critical both to appreciating our history and to learning from the mistakes of the past. I think the cancellation stories can teach you about how brutal the industry can be at times. I mean, that, that there are failures and that it's okay that by hearing other people's stories about games that have been cancelled, then... Uh, new developers coming along can see that it's you know failures do happen and although for like large-scale companies if there's a financial commitment it can be quite damaging I don't think it's always a bad thing if people are making mistakes it's okay to make mistakes that's part of the learning process you can learn from some of these people's stories that you know those mistakes they made they actually went on and learned from those mistakes they either used remnants of those ideas in other games further along the line that's quite a key thing to 
other people if they were if they were experiencing failures themselves by seeing other people's stories it kind of gives them maybe a bit of comfort that it's not an uncommon thing this is just something that happens and that it's okay these are games that are sometimes worked on for years uh and it's not just games from developers you've never heard of it's big name developers that's a, a a big part of somebody's career if you've worked on it a large period of time and to add to that, you have to look at it in the larger context of what a company, what a individual developer is making over the course of their career. Some of those canceled projects lead to something that's really great. Uh, Resident Evil 2, you know, that's one of the best games of all time. And I don't know if it would have been quite that good had what we call Resident Evil 1.5 not existed in the past. And I think that sort of information that, that you gain through a project, whether it's completed or not, uh, provides huge value to our knowledge base. What makes a game good can come from it. What makes a game bad could come from it. Uh, but also just tricks, learning new tools. There's so much knowledge that can come from a canceled game. Uh, because really, a, a game isn't necessarily canceled because it's bad. It could be canceled because it didn't meet expectations, which is a different thing. It could be canceled because of political reasons, uh, budgetary reasons. Sometimes it's just uh, kind of the political reason of somebody at a publisher doesn't like your company. Canceled games, unreleased games, prototype games, they're all part of the story of this industry. And like it or not, they all leave a trace behind after they're gone. They haunt us and inspire us these ghosts of the games that never were, as we push on, forever looking forward and back simultaneously in pursuit of something we lost or of something we never had. They're one tool among many for understanding what games are, and they can lead to better things, as in Desert Bus for Hope or Frank Cefaldi's favourite indie game in recent years, A Short Hike which spawned from the ashes of an unfinished RPG. But however we choose to move on from them, I think it's critical that we embrace them. Own them, study them, play them, fork them off into something new, or just accept that sometimes an idea doesn't work out. And like the developers with graveyards worth of never-released games, pilfer the parts we like, and hope that this game is the one that's going to make it. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss, with support from my 32 patrons. I love that it's been higher nearly every time I've said that this season. And a special shout out to producer-level patrons, Sean Huff, Kerry Clanton, Rob Eberhardt, Simon Moss, Seth Robinson, Scott Grant, Vivek Mohan, and Wade Trigaskis. This was the final episode in Season 4. I'll have some sound bites and interviews up over the coming weeks, but it'll be a little while before I'm back with Season 5. And with news about a special Life and Times video games project that I'm pretty psyched about doing. As soon as I finish writing the manuscript, or my upcoming Shareware Heroes book. In case you haven't noticed already, the show has a new logo. It's blue. And it has a nice chill vibe. It took a few months and over a hundred iterations on an initial idea my wife and I had. 
But we've ended up with something pretty cool, I think. I've also updated the website design to reflect the new look, so you can check that out at lifeandtimes.games. If you enjoy the show, remember that it helps me tremendously if you share it. And if you're able to donate to help me buy new gear, to improve the show's production quality, to allow me more time away from freelancing to work on new episodes, and perhaps even get to the point that one day I can turn this thing into a proper part-time or full-time job. Really, to support me in any financial capacity, you can always send me money via paypal.me slash mossrc or subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash life and times of video games or email me richard at lifeandtimes.games for anything else. Until next time, I hope that 2021 is treating you well so far. My name is Richard Moss, and this was The Life and Times Video Games, Season 4, signing off. Thanks for listening. I'll see ya.